So before you were the artistic director of the Blah Blah Blahs in Leeds, you were actually artistic director of the Playhouse in Birmingham, and that's how we first met. I was wondering, in that time since we've seen one another, has your approach to making work for school audiences, young audiences, changed um, in any way? Yes. Yes, specifically for schools. Um, I think it has changed, but it's changed kind of in response to environment. Um, so I think because of the situation with schools now, because it is much harder to be working almost exclusively for schools and with schools for a long time, I've been devising work or working with writers or, or whatever, um, but kind of thinking about audiences in different settings so kind of creating work that has the ability to cross over between schools between community settings and increasingly theatre venues as well so I think you know there was a time where the devising was very specifically for schools and really having that deep knowledge of how schools worked and those really close relationships with teachers but I think just by the nature of schools and the fact that it's so much more difficult now to to work regularly with schools. So yeah, it, it has. But a lot of the processes, a lot of the kind of, um, um, yeah, a lot of the processes haven't changed. You know, I still work in a very collaborative way because why wouldn't you? You've got a room full of people who bring expertise and resources and experiences. Why wouldn't you use them? Why would you be autocratic about that? Um, and that hasn't changed. And I can't see that changing ever, to be honest. <laughs> Great. That's really great to hear. And I was wondering how your company, The Blahs now, uh, which are based in Leeds, how does the city of Leeds influence the work that you make? You know, that's a really interesting question. It's one that I was actually thinking about today because The Blahs have always had this sort of strong local profile. I mean, over the years, that sort of manifest in different ways, uh, you know, historically, the company had a youth theatre, it had a very strong cohort of local schools that it connected with repeatedly, but yet the company has always had a national and international profile. So it's like how that all, how all of those pieces sit together. And I think we are sort of there again now where we're looking at what's our local relationships, particularly when we're looking at kind of co-authorship you know, how are we building those sustained relationships with groups of children and young people? But we have an intention to tour nationally. Uh, and in the future, you know, should the project be um, right, then, you know, again, I think we would consider working internationally. So it's sort of how all of that really sits together. You know, a project like Stirring Up the Past has a very strong Leeds focus um, and isn't going to tour because it's site specific. A project like the Vulture Song, you know, absolutely did and had its origins in an international collaboration. Um, so I think, you know, that's a live question really about how that all sits together and how it informs the work. So I don't think there's a sort of definitive answer on that. I think that's something that kind of gets reconfigured constantly. <laughs> Um, cool. Your most recent work, The Vultures Song, the audiences and the, the span of venues that that work toured to, from schools to community centres to theatres, it was also uh, written by Mike Kenny. So I was wondering, first of all, how did that collaboration come around with Mike and how did that process of putting that show together 
take place? What did that look like? Well, so the, the very beginnings of that project started in, now let me see if I can get this right, I think about 2015, if not a little bit earlier. And it started off just with the idea of creating something around partition because it was coming up for the 70th anniversary. Um, and at the time, the Blas had a relationship with a couple of schools in India and had gone out and done CPD with the teachers and taken work over there to tour into the schools. Um, so there was basically those three ingredients. There was the idea of creating something around partition. There was the idea of a partnership with schools in India and in the UK. And there was a commitment from Mike. Uh, to work as a writer in the process. And I had just joined the Blas at the time, so I kind of inherited that, but that's all it was. It was just really those ideas. And then over a three-year period, two, two, yeah, two to three-year period, actually, it went through sort of various stages of development. So we were lucky enough to secure some R&D funding through an initiative, an Arts Council initiative or funding stream called Reimagine India, which was all about creating work for the um, anniversary of uh, Indian independence. And of course, shortly after that partition, because those two events kind of happened very close to one another. Um, and that um, funded us to go and do two periods of R&D in India um then subsequently we got some further funding to do another period of r d in the uk um, and at that stage the intention was still very much around creating work for schools um and mike worked with us in that process and uh, came out to india we worked with indian actors we um, spent time in schools there we did a lot of research with survivors of partition um that generation that really were very elderly at that stage and you know unfortunately were dying um, so we spoke to people who had had that first-hand experience of displacement and all of the other things that came with partition um, and then we gosh I mean it was the, the sort of development and this was of course um, so funding dependent that you know every stage of development was then precipitated the next was precipitated by another round of fundraising so there'd be pause and then we got funding for the next bit and then there'd be another pause so i'm just kind of trying to think of the various different chapters in the process um and then we had yes yeah, so then mike had developed the script um and we knew we were going to do it in schools but by that stage the kind of explicit collaboration with India hadn't been possible. We hadn't got the funding for that. Um, so in the first instance, we uh, had decided that we would tour it to schools in the UK. But with the script having been developed, then it was there um, for the theatre company who we developed a partnership with, a company called Yellow Cat, who are based in Delhi. Um, it was there for them to tour it when the, the, they had the means to do that. Um, which didn't end up happening. Um, I won't say ever won't happen because, you know, there's still a possibility and I still have a close relationship with the artistic director of Yellow Cat, so we've kind of sustained that relationship. Um, so we then, um, and this was actually with funding from the Paul Hamlin Foundation, we toured into schools, but um, we toured it alongside the development of some digital resources. Um, which was kind of where the participation of that piece resided as opposed to explicitly being 
within the performance itself, which would be the sort of modus operandi of the Blas previously, that we would create a piece of participatory theatre. Um, whereas this time, even though we were creating it for schools, um, we were sort of under pressure to start to work with larger audiences, which started to make that participatory work more difficult. So we were exploring new ways of um, engaging our audiences in the questions and the themes and the issues of the piece. And we looked to kind of trial doing that through a set of digital resources that sat alongside um, the performance. We developed those in partnership with CNT. Um, and we worked alongside a cohort of teachers who were almost like a kind of focus group for this. And we carried out research into it to the extent to which they could use the resources to really continue work in the classroom. So that's kind of where we did our, our schools tour. And like I said, it was part of a bigger package of activity um, funded by Paul Hamlin. Um, then we got another um, piece of funding and this was at the time when the Blas unfortunately lost their um, MPO status so um, we were a national portfolio organisation until the last round uh, and then we lost our funding so as a part of the project funding that we received after coming out of MPO um, we looked to how we might broaden our audiences because we were aware that schools work was really dropping off um, and so we had some money to tour to a few community settings. Then the kind of final chapter of it um, was this year where we had funding to tour the Vulture Song to theatre venues. And really that was about us really um, starting to develop our venue relationships to look at that sort of repositioning of the company to become a small scale touring company. Um, and as you say, that was the activity that was unfortunately cut short by COVID. So that's, that's a kind of very long-winded gallop through several years of development of a piece that kind of had multiple intentions and worked across, you know, different audiences and different settings. So a really kind of key developmental piece for us. Yeah, and what a shame for the tour to be cut short. Do you, So you obviously must feel then that throughout... The developmental process that the piece had gone on that unfortunately for those small theatre audiences they were missing out on the show or the project in its absolute best form would you yes, agree yes yes i do it was a bitter disappointment i think there was a kind of um um what's the word there was a buzz around it um, there was, because we had done those previous tours, we had the responses of audiences. Um, you know, we were going into that conversation with venues, um, with the benefit of those two tours behind us, you know, on a really practical level, it had allowed us to create kind of really good quality promotional materials, but we had those qualitative audience responses that we could say, this is what our audiences are saying in response to the, this work. And we had um, done two performances, so we were in the really early stages of the tour. And we'd had really, really positive feedback from the audiences um, and really good feedback mechanisms as well. So it just sort of, it was the beginning of, yes, the tour, but a bigger conversation and beginning to establish those relationships and our, and our reputation as a, as a company that also toured to theatre venues and you know and could still in those settings engage schools audiences 
So one of the settings that we um, um, performed to did engage local schools. That was the audience that they, you know, that they drew in, and drawing on the resources that we had that were sitting around the performance and the expertise that we had, and obviously their established relationships. So it really felt like it was the beginning of something very exciting, um, and to have it cut short at such critical stage sort of felt just really difficult for us. Um, and of course, we don't know when that small scale touring sector is going to kind of be able to get back off its knees again. And we don't know what shape it will be. So it sort of feels that that was a moment of opportunity and we don't know when that will come again because nobody does. Um, no. However, from the outside looking in, the rich development that the Vulture song had gone through left you incredibly well prepared for the unexpected. You have all of the learning resources for the show available online and those learning resources are not just for schools or young people but also families as well. The full performance of the show is available to view on YouTube. So all of that digital wraparound regardless yeah. of the unexpected was certainly all there ready to go i know it was and i think that was really interesting because obviously when the cancellations happened us you know like many other companies we instantly responded by going well what can we make accessible and you know the um, resources that sat around wrapped around the performance were always there to be available for free for anybody really because it's accessible through the website but it was something that you know was signposted for our schools audiences and for our family audiences so you know we'd developed those and i think that that draws on our uh kind of applied theater origins if you like that idea that you know you're not just offering a in the moment experience which you are but you're offering something that allows you to extend and deepen the conversations coming out of the work and also you know the vulture song draws on some very sensitive and difficult issues and events so there's a responsibility actually to provide um support to enable those conversations to continue and you know we've, we've always taken that responsibility sort of very seriously but yeah you're right so then it was like well we can make these um so draw draw people's attention to the fact that this is available but the one thing that we did do like you say was we then made a recording of the performance available on youtube under normal circumstances we wouldn't have done that because that wasn't recorded um, it was recorded for internal purposes, you know, it was more a, a record or a rehearsal guide. But it just felt like the times were so exceptional that actually, and there was a tolerance perhaps for material being out there that wasn't sort of national theatre streaming quality. <laughs> you know, people were just hungry for digital content, you know, be that for home learning or... Uh, and so for us, it was a it was a kind of first line response, really. Let's make as much of this accessible as we possibly can. Yeah. And, you know, we had the highest ever levels of uh, engagement with any of the resources that we'd ever put out. I think in a four month period, there was like 3000 views on YouTube. And, you know, that's the level of engagement we would never previously have got. But I think it's absolutely opened the door now for everybody to really consider what a digital offer is, because 
it, this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, there's, there's things to be learned from this. And I think there was that initial response that we were a part of, which was a kind of um, um, sort of putting stuff out online digitally, responding in the moment to the crisis and the immediacy of the crisis. And now what I think you see a lot of companies doing, us as well, is to really think very deeply about what is the nature of our digital offer and what are we wanting to do through that and how do we need to upskill in order to meet that. So now it's more considered. That was an immediate response. Now it's in that kind of, you know, considered terrain, more strategic. Yeah. Could I ask, in regards to the themes of the Vultures song, which for a show that is for young audiences the themes of the show could actually be perceived as being quite dark or difficult to approach with young people. You know, you've got themes of partition, displacement, fractured communities, loss, exile. How did the young people react to the show? Do you know what was really um, interesting about this was we had a number of audiences where a lot of those things that you've mentioned, particularly being displaced, um, uh, some young people who were from refugee and migrant backgrounds. So we had a, a significant number of audience members for whom, who had lived experience of those things. And um, they spoke very positively about seeing that some of that stuff reflected back and the framing of it. Um, because, you know, we, Mike Kenny is a master storyteller obviously that goes without saying and his kind of very careful framing and the kind of you know interposing between lightness and dark humor and kind of you know really difficult territory and of course the use of the storytelling vultures as a sort of a distancing device and the the, the sort of um, and the playfulness and the grotesque that comes with that so that very careful sort of protection mechanisms that are built into the storytelling and um, the young people who um, experienced um, the piece for whom those issues sort of resonated only spoke positively about it. And in some instances, we had, I mean, this really blew me away. We had one um, audience in a school and at the end of it, the teacher came up and said, this is amazing. I've taught that girl for two years and she came and she told me that both of her parents were killed. Um, and I knew that she was a refugee, but both of her parents were killed. And I didn't know that about her and she's never shared that with anybody. So, you know, those kind of really profound moments of connection actually with audiences. Um, you know, again, we had a, a refugee theatre company that came to see it and, you know, for them, it, it, it enabled them to have some of those conversations that aren't easy, that are really, really tough. And also you would have had audiences for whom, you know, they've never had lived experience of this and then they're engaging with things sort of differently. So I have to say we didn't have any... Um, kind of negative responses to that. It was only really positive um, in terms of opening up conversations and understandings and we had uh, one audience where the audience members were predominantly um, Indian heritage and again some of the people in the audience had lived connections to partition mainly through their parents 
and that audience stayed afterwards and talked just you know with one another for ages about it um and it was a big kind of extended family group but again it had kind of sparked memories and you know so i think there's a real power to connect but also to protect yeah and that connection comes through the beautifully woven universal themes that are explored through the narrative also yeah and that was a really really early intention we knew sort of in the very earliest stages of development that we didn't want to do a play about partition Um, we knew that we wanted to tell a universal story that would draw on some of the stories and experiences of partition and of course some people would come to it and they would kind of overlay their own experiences to read it as partition but most of our young audiences had no knowledge or experience of partition so that wasn't in their um if you like kind of projected reality that they put onto it you know they read it really multifariously and we deliberately wanted to do that we wanted it to resonate differently with different audiences and you know for some of our young audiences it 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 became about um the basics of difference you know and how you treat people who are different from you um you know that was and and that was what they drew from that kind of yeah the universal um kind of nature of the storytelling and yeah we very deliberately wanted to do that and we wanted no, no, and we wanted it to be playful. We knew that from the very beginning as well. So did that feedback from those young audiences then help to shape the SMSC research that was funded through the Paul Hamlin Foundation? Um, that came a little later, actually. I think um, it came explicitly a little later, but I think that as a kind of question or an inquiry had been sitting over the blast work for a long time and that had been the kind of perennial question around where work of this nature fits into curriculum and you know for a very long time uh, I think you know we had a sense of the blast work having more of a lateral connection to curriculum as opposed to instrumental Um, So as opposed to saying, we will do this part of the curriculum for you, it was much more, we will open up these kinds of conversations. And so for a long time, there'd been a sense really that SMSC and prior to that, PHSE was sort of where the work could connect meaningfully to. Um, And then that began, I think, through the first year or so of developing that, that began to crystallise maybe into a clearer question. And then really when we started to look at um, the sort of development of the piece, but also pragmatically how you fund the development of the piece, and then how whoever you're approaching for funding, the alignment of their criteria with your intentions, then it started to emerge as, well, actually we have the opportunity to here to do a sustained um, piece of research that actually tracks teachers working over a year in the end. And that's what it ended up being. So I think, yeah, there was a, a sort of an emergence and a crystallization of a question that had sat over the work for a long time. Mm. And is taking that lateral approach how the Blas plan to continue to work? These are the topics, themes that we're interested in. And then through exploring them or working, collaborating with teachers, 
then begins yeah. to open them up for discussions with young people. Yeah, I think in terms of schools, that's very much where the relationship sits. You know, it does sit with those areas of the curriculum that enable the opening up of a space for conversation. And I think in terms of how we view the work uh, and the kind of stories we want to tell and the kind of work we want to make, it is about exploring those questions and issues that matter to, to children and young people in the world today. Um, I think that probably what is shifting for the company is that um, question about how we involve children and young people as co-authors in our work more. So previously we've kind of tacitly built on understandings of where they're at in the world and we've built on that previously through spending time in schools with them and sometimes repeatedly visiting schools. Because that picture shifting now and because we haven't got those sustained relationships with schools now it's actually the question is how do we more explicitly involve children and young people in the early development of work as in a co-author role really um, and I think longer term the question is how do we kind of um, discover the sort of interests and questions that they have pre-developing project ideas so you know that's that's a very live area for us but certainly in terms of schools work it is very much around those areas of the curriculum that we'd sit seek to make connections to yeah yeah and from this research what methodologies are you beginning to cultivate like what do these conversations look like when working co-collaboratively with teachers i mean we're not in terms of the sort of pre um pre-development of projects we're not having those conversations at the moment, but what we are trialling, we're just applying for some funding for three lots of R&D uh, activity that will run simultaneously. And in that, we're going to be trialling uh, work in schools and nursery, uh, nursery settings, because we're talking about working with um, very young children on one of the project, and then older uh, children on another of the projects so we're looking at in the very very early stages of developing project ideas actually going to them with the material with the questions uh, with some of the form that we're interested in exploring and, and actually having a playing really you know having um, playful workshops where we're quite open we have clear questions we're open in terms of the responses and then really looking at how their responses can inform then work that takes place in the studio in a more traditional R&D. So we're, um, we're actually just literally last week have submitted for some Arts Council funding to support that. And that's really about co-authorship. Yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. working co-creatively with pupils and teachers produces such exciting and organic processes and eventually materials to work yeah, with absolutely and i think you know we've in the past like i say we've relied on that sustained relationships with schools and regularly working with teachers who are kind of the gatekeepers to children and that was the way that we were kind of accessing um you know sort of um the origins or, or the conversations that would allow us to sort of shape up projects but because that is now um, largely separate uh, you know it, it's kind of looking at well how do we do this differently yeah so I saw on your website that you're currently R&D in a new show 
stirring up the past, which looks incredibly yeah. <laughs> exciting because you are once again creating site-specific work with and in national heritage sites in Leeds. So how did yeah. how did this project come about? How's it all going? Uh, yes, so we had our first online teacher session last week. So again, this has been another project. And I think that there's something interesting in just saying this, a long gestation of projects, time to really build meaningful partnerships, you know, and that has, that's, sat with the vulture song and it sits with uh, stirring up the past because the conversations for this project started about three years ago <laughs> um, with uh, with Leeds, Leeds museums and specifically with the discovery center which is an amazing space it's a storage facility for over a million eclectic artifacts um, you know it's a high-tech climate control light controlled environment and then you walk in and it is just this kind of Aladdin's Cove of amazing ephemera and um, one of the I was really lucky uh, really early in the process to see a couple of school groups go into that space and just to watch children's responses and just to watch what they noticed and what they picked out and you know just to see their kind of it's an overused expression but their awe and wonder at that Place. and the questions that they had about it as well uh, was brilliant and just to kind of go this is an exciting space for kids yes we should absolutely be making some work here <laughs> um, but I think you know history kind of hold, holds everything that we are as human beings you know if you look to history there's every story and experience that's ever been told and it's um, and great history is about great storytelling and it the story changes depending on who's telling it. So, you know, there's a massive affinity with theatre there. Um, and very often these places are very kind of theatrical spaces as well. Um, you know, when you're creating site-specific work, I think you've got to be very careful about the stimulus that you're bringing or the offer you're bringing uh, the theatre offer and really kind of being very careful about that, how that sits with the offer of that space and the things within it. Um, so the beginnings of this, oh goodness, was, I mean, I think it, it, the sort of starting point of it was around um, telling marginalised stories. So telling some of those stories that are often sidelined in history. Um, and at the time, the museum was doing a lot of work around the centenary of the First World War. So it was about kind of surfacing some of those stories of the um, Black and Asian soldiers that tended to get more sidelined. You know, when we think about that time, when we think about the kind of people who were, um, who were fight on the battlefields and, you know, fighting that war. Um, so, you know, it was, obviously museums are full of um, amazing experts, uh, you know, who are fully aware of the, the kind of collections that they hold and the stories that those collections tell and, and the need to kind of explore that from multiple points of view. Um, so, you know, it was very fertile ground really to have those conversations. But we kind of just felt that as a theatre company, what we could bring to that is we could bring um immersive and experiential storytelling we could you know allow the children to um step into the world um 
conjured by those artifacts or meet the people associated with them and bring those stories really compellingly to life. And through doing that, we could kind of provoke questions around history and our conceived notions of history, largely being about dead white men. Uh, you know, we could reframe that, we could challenge that. And of course, now there's the whole sort of, um, sort of post-colonial lens that's being applied to a lot of collections and you know looking at those artifacts acquired during the colonial times and looking again at the stories that are being told so it really sat within that territory that kind of work that was being done by museums and curators um, and that was kind of really the early set of intentions um, and then over time again you know with funding and the ability to do some R&D so we did uh, last year we did some R&D where we dug deeper into the collections and um, sort of spent time speaking to the curators and surfacing some of those stories. And we took some of that early stuff into schools to really find where children were orientating in terms of that to sort of guide us. Um, and we were going to be doing a site-specific performance now. <laughs> So that was the timeline and again we were going to be creating digital resources that would sit alongside that to accompany the performance and to extend uh, the performance obviously that's changed um, so we've kind of renegotiated the activity with the funding that we had already secured um, so now what we're doing and we're in the midst of this is we are doing um, we're working on the resources but as, as almost a standalone piece um, and we've brought greater resources to those and this is also partly us kind of um, I guess experimenting with uh, and exploring what is our digital offer so we've, uh, we've got resources of a writer a filmmaker and four actors and we're actually going to be creating filmed and audio content at the heart of these resources uh, and then around that would be activities that will link to um, the classroom. I mean, these resources are, are mainly devised um, for teachers to use. Hence, the teacher meeting last week as we're working with uh, a small cohort of teachers to inform the development of, of, the, um, of the classroom activities sitting around that. So that's where we are. We're still hoping that we will be able to do the site-specific performance, but in a year's time. Um, and that kind of will be slightly different content, same intentions and aims, um, but slightly different content featuring different artifacts, different uh, characters emerging through a crack in time. That's kind of the basic premise of it. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully a year from now, then uh, yourself and those young people can visit the site and this work can take place. Yeah, and connecting it to those children and young people in some shape or form, you know, sort of building a relationship and, you know, kind of um, addressing those issues of identity and place and actually finding a way of exploring that where you're um, kind of cracking open that idea of who, who, who does, you know, in our instance, who does Leeds belong to? Well, it belongs to all of us because look at these stories. They are interconnected and they are global and they always have been. So everybody has a connection to these things and this place and this city. 
that these things have kind of contributed to the industrial and the cultural and the social life of. So, you know, that's the stuff that we were really sort of interested in doing in, in you know, really enabling those collections to speak to all of those children in those classrooms that are very often um, diverse and multilingual and you know and look so are these collections and look so is Leeds sort of relationship to these collections one of the curators put it in a really lovely succinct way and said this museum tells the story of Leeds going out into the world and the world coming back to Leeds and you know I kind of think you could apply that to things other than objects as well <laughs> yeah. yeah sure is is the site actually open to the general uh, public Deborah? Well, I mean, Leeds Museums is, sits across multiple sites um, and, you know, they are open to the public under normal circumstances, obviously not right now at the moment in national lockdown, but they are. The, the um, Discovery Centre is, um, they do have events that public can attend. Um, and it's, so it's not kind of open on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a place of storage research conservation you know really vibrant busy hub and uh, you know there are events where the public can come in so school groups visit um you know they have open days and they have specific activities so yes it is accessible yeah and how have teachers responded to your r&d cpd sessions it was really interesting because i was really um i guess concerned that given the pressure that schools are under at the moment, that we wouldn't have particularly high attendance. You know, we're asking teachers to come at the end of a the day. They're sort of managing multiple demands at the moment. Um, and so I kind of thought, gosh, are we going to get anybody coming? Um, we had eight teachers come, which at the moment is pretty good. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them were saying, despite the challenges that we're facing, we really want to be able to kind of enrich our teaching with interesting and diverse learning materials. And that's why we want to be a part of this. Um, there's a couple more teachers who will probably come to the next one who couldn't because of various circumstances attend. So, you know, if we have a sort of steady group of 10, then, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with that under the circumstances really. Um, but I mean, once those resources are developed, they will be accessible for free on a site that has over 80,000 hits a year. So they'll be used. <laughs> um, and, you know, we'll make them kind of high quality and relevant. Um, you know, that's, that's very much the reason why we want to involve teachers is that, you know, we, we, we want them to be used. Yeah. Could I ask, how do your cultural heritage partners in Leeds respond to your passion to collaborate are they supportive oh yeah yeah absolutely i think like i say you know in terms of any partnerships that we, we you know we don't rush a partnership it's something that we really take our time to because you have to i think for you know for partnerships to have a chance of being successful and, and to be mutually meaningful and have value you have to take time to negotiate them and particularly when they're partnerships across sectors because you know sort of um, museums have a whole set of uh, methodologies and expertise that we as a fit company don't there's a lot of alignments but there's a lot of stuff that is very different different expertise and vice versa and you have to take time 
to understand that and to negotiate some of that. Um, so a really interesting one is the idea of, as a theatre company, we would be very comfortable with taking a historical event or even um, historical figures and to some degree fictionalising them, you know, uh, because it's within the context and it's clearly framed as a fictional experience. You know, if you are a curator, then that can be problematic. Uh, you know, yes, there's interpretation, but if you're actually taking somebody who existed and you are inventing events and ascribing it to that person, then you can start to be in ethical territory that's a little bit problematic in terms of what's truth, what's historical fact. So, you know, we've had to have careful conversations around we will carefully frame that, you know, and because also these are digital resources. They're not happening live, so we're not able to actually do that careful framing or contracting into the experience as we would do in a live encounter. So we're having to look at ways of how we would do that digitally, you know, what would sit around those resources to kind of underline that this is based on this real event. Here's the information about it. This is now an imagined version of that and you can engage with it in these ways. So, you know, really taking the time to kind of tease out or, or for those issues to surface and to take the time to, to work on them so that you have mutual trust and um, understanding of the expertise that the other party brings. And you can't do that stuff quickly. No, no, I'm sure that you can't. And And what a great end result is that these partnerships and the collaborative nature of your relationship with your partners ends up supporting and you know allowing these collaborative artistic projects to eventually flourish and continue to take place which as you say takes time and also the expertise across all sectors to to bring it all together um yeah it's really exciting to to hear you speak about that and and to hear somebody talking about how these partnerships are formulated and executed and it's you know it's exciting it's stimulating and i think it um you would hope then that that kind of quality and depth and rigor to the process will ensure some degree of longevity for it and i'd prefer to work in that way than something that is you know I, of course there are situations where you have to be really responsive and you know to respond to an opportunity and you know everyone will um you know, and pragmatically sometimes you have to work in those ways but and there's opportunities to work in those ways. You know, over the summer, we um, came together with a number of other theatre companies and we did a day of outdoor performances. That was incredibly responsive. It was in communities where there were high levels of digital poverty. Uh, so we were able to engage families who just weren't having any kind of cultural um, access at all. And that was really quick and responsive and, you know, had huge value. And that's great. So this doesn't sort of... Um, you know, there are times where there's there's a good reason to work in that way, but actually in terms of developing partnerships that have, like I say, uh, some sense of longevity, I'd really prefer to work in a way that allows that um, to develop over time. And gosh, you know, there's a real tension there in a uh, funding, um, what would the word be? 
um, an environment where funding is difficult to come by you know there is a real tension where you're looking to develop projects and partnerships over a period of time because of course that requires resourcing and you know that requires relationships with funders it requires a clear articulation of process it requires reputation around quality work so it comes out of all of those things which when you're starting out you don't have that as kind of capital if you like to to use to draw on so you know i get that that's not something that is available to everybody and you know sometimes it's not available to us either because we don't get the funding. Mm. <laughs> yeah you're right and i think it goes back to what you uh, were speaking on earlier in regards to forging pathways and and making partnerships that are long-lasting you also teach at lipa as well deborah am i right on the applied theater undergraduate program it's the theater and education module that you teach Uh, and i was wondering what skills do you explore with new undergraduate applied students to equip them once they graduate to begin making theatre and education? I think I'm very lucky with that uh, module because they're second year students and they have already had a really good foundation in a lot of the sort of practices or methodology um, that I would want to be working with them uh, to use. So I'm not starting from square one with them. Um, they've already had experience of uh, creating applied theatre, not necessarily to take out to audiences. I think this is the first time that they actually go out of the university and they work with a specific community. So, of course, that brings with it a huge amount of trepidation for them. <laughs> so, there's a lot of managing nerves and building resilience and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I've taught a number of TIE modules over the years now, and I think I've kind of learnt by trial and error and probably making a lot of mistakes about the best way to sort of distill the practice. Um, so I guess what I, I, I kind of start off with is I start by looking at some key theatre and education texts um, from... Um, kind of well-regarded theatre and education companies that they get to play out, but also to deconstruct. Uh, and in deconstructing, they're, they're starting to kind of um, unpick what is sitting behind the audience engagement, uh, you know, the framing of the audience, the sort of modes of storytelling. But also I, um, I have kind of come to sort of codify some of the practice drawing on theory um so i tend to work with um peter not peter um tony jackson's uh sort of he 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 codes it into sort of um seven different modes um and I, i tend to kind of use frameworks like that as a starting point with the students um just as a way really of almost providing a, i don't know a framework or a, a taxonomy or that we can hang stuff off and then they can begin to kind of embed it in their in their practical work um so really for the first 
pretty much half of the course because I teach over an entire term but I think for the first half of the course it's very much about establishing um, some of those sort of foundational principles with them and actually holding them back from devising you know there's a point in the middle where they're starting to get very anxious because they're kind of seeing that tour schedule and they're going but we haven't started devising yet and I'm like yes just hold on it's fine you'll be fine you just really need to become very familiar with these because this will speed up your devising process um and within that then you know it's kind of laying some really clear parameters for how they're going to engage their audience and what they're facilitating you know the basis on which they make work because if they're going in to create a great piece of storytelling and then they've got no entry points for the young people and they don't know the questions that they're asking you know it's it's like we know with applied theatre practice it's absolutely about those kind of performance and those participatory elements evolving hand in hand with a clear sense of intentionality and purpose and a clear sense of your audience and what you're asking of them so you know i do really take time to kind of instill and explore and for them to own that stuff before they start their devising process um and then i mean over the years I've kind of worked with different content. Um, sometimes it's been drawing on uh, projects that are live for me because then I can bring a lot of stimulus materials into the studio. So I think the first time I worked at Lipper, we worked with partition materials um, because obviously I was in the midst of devising the Vulture song. And so there was a lot of stuff to hand that I could share with them. Um, Whereas last time, actually, it, uh, it drew much more in the interests of the group. It was a group that were, and I knew this from the course director, it was a group that were real kind of passionate activists. They were out there. They were kind of, you know, they were wanting to make work that sort of um, inspired people to make actual change. Um, and so I sort of used that as a starting point and we looked to um, some historical change makers or activists that had an association with Liverpool and they used that as their starting point then to open up conversations with um, the young people that they were going to be working with around ideas of activism. Um, so that was kind of the starting point for content was very much the, the sort of um, the group itself. So yeah I think um, you know there's always new things that come out and there's always things that send me back to the drawing board and you know opportunities or tweaks or you know revelations that you have it's never a kind of you know i don't have my module fixed and i pop it on the shelf and dust it off the next year it's something that i'm kind of always revisiting depending on what the group bring to the process yeah sure and and how does the learning relationship between yourself and the undergraduates also begin to challenge and benefit you as a theatre practitioner as well? It very much does because I'm going into that, you know, I'm going into that process, yes, as somebody who's teaching that module, but also as an applied theatre practitioner myself. So, you know, that's a two-way process. And very often I'll say to them, I have a toolkit and a set of experiences I can share with you, but I don't have all of the answers. And some of the things that you're wrangling with is stuff I still wrangle with, you know. Um, 
So I think, yeah, there's always learning where you're kind of then reflecting back on what you do. Or sometimes to explain something, you need to distill it and that can bring a greater level of awareness around it. You're having to articulate it. And in order to articulate it, you're having to understand it for yourself. So, um, and I think that sort of codifying practice was really useful for me because it made me kind of go, oh, that's what we do when we're working with, young people and that's what's happening when we're facilitating that so it was helpful to kind of just have those insights um which evolve you know they evolve all the time you know i yeah i think there's a whole load of questions that are thrown up for me as a director or a divisor um you know now that work is not explicitly participatory i've got a whole load of questions around the feedback loop with the audience, you know, which are unresolved. So there's always going to be questions that sit over any work that you do. <laughs> what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that undergraduate applied theatre students face when beginning to understand and develop their own practice within this area? Do you know what I think the biggest challenge is, um, is around... Um, the opportunity to actually do this work beyond university. I think that that is the biggest challenge because I think so many of those groups that we would normally be um, working with, you know, be that a group of students in a school, uh, be that through a youth theatre setting, be that through organised youth groups, so many of those have absolutely been stripped of their funding and their resources and barely exist anymore. So I think the opportunities to actually carry out this work in the first place are just severely limited now. And I think that's the biggest challenge that, you know, you have these students who have spent three years um working incredibly hard and doing really exciting projects with the support of the university through the networks and the contacts using the resources of the university and then they leave and it's really really tough for them to continue that work and to, to establish and set something up for themselves because you know we're just in a really resource poor environment for applied to work and I think that's the biggest challenge and, and consequently you're, uh, you're having to manage expectations but in a way that absolutely doesn't crush their zeal and their desire to work in this way because perhaps they have answers that those of us who are, have been in the sector for a long time don't because they're coming to it and seeing new opportunities. So you kind of want to go, this isn't going to be easy, but do it anyway. And, you know, and I do find that a really sort of challenging aspect of my teaching because I don't want to be coming in and being really cynical. But at the same time, you know, I also do want to kind of um, prepare the students for the world that they're going to be entering into. And also to kind of, you know, to, to really bring home the skill set that's going to be required to survive. And it isn't enough to just be a brilliant practitioner. You do have to be that overused term of entrepreneurial. And, and you know, it, you really have to kind of seek out your opportunities and be able to be well networked and, you know, to seek out your partnerships and to find ways of working with little resourcing, which often is about asset sharing you have to be able to do all of that as well as being or working to being 
a really great practitioner. Are there any applied academic options for young people in Leeds? Are there any applied courses? Yeah, there is. Yeah. And I have done some teaching at Leeds over the years, uh, again, sort of, you know, very much within the, uh, the spectrum of applied theatre work. Um, uh, just trying to think the last time I worked there, it was probably three or four years ago. Well, I, I was offered a, 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 some further teaching there, but Blas commitments, this is the other thing as well, is kind of juggling those different commitments. I mean, that's very familiar to anybody who has any kind of freelance practice to their career, that whole tessellation of making projects fit together and sometimes you just can't. Um, but yes, there, there is a sort of a strong strand of um, applied theatre um sort of work and practice that's happening i mean at the moment you know i think the, the sort of higher education landscape looks very different particularly on those practical courses than it would do under normal circumstances um because you know that inability to get together in a shared physical space and make work um so the teaching opportunities are less um and also, like everywhere else, you know, they're under financial pressure. So, um, yeah, there's a whole particular set of challenges that this pandemic has brought to every sector. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so do you encourage undergraduates to pursue a specific path within the applied arts? Or, I don't know, do you kind of leave that open and share your own journey and say, take from it, yeah. take from it what you yeah. will? I think in the spirit of being a facilitator, <laughs> it's about kind of equipping them with, you know, full knowledge and supporting them to make the decisions that are right for them, uh, you know, and their kind of aspirations. And, you know, certainly the teaching at Lipper, it sits within a wider programme of study where it's very, very much about that. Uh, you know, it's a very practical course, but it's a course that absolutely supports them to you know, make their decisions by the end of it about where their interests lie and how they want to kind of realise them, really. So I'm a very small cog in a much bigger machine. <laughs> yeah. I'm also really excited, Deborah, to get the opportunity to talk to you about something brand, brand, brand new, um, which is a new project that you're currently working on called Guerrilla Gardening. Um, and you sent me over the project brief, um, and it's another piece of work which is applicable for not only communities and theatre audiences within Leeds, but also looks as though it's diverting itself towards a more national profile as well. How, how's that all going? Absolutely. And that's that's a really good one to kind of cite as an example, because you know, that's a piece we're hoping it is going to go into R&D. Uh, that kind of speaks to a lot of the things that we've spoken about, actually, um, because it is about uh, cross-sector partnerships. So we're looking to work with organisations who whose remit is around growing and outdoor environments. So a couple of organisations, Incredible Edible and Trees for Cities. Um, and it's very much about developing those partnerships locally to inform work, as well as working with children in uh, in local schools to develop the material in its early stages but the intention for that piece is that it will tour and those organizations and their national networks will then kind of help us to devise and develop the wraparound activities uh, around the piece and you know like you say there's a, a growing theme to the storytelling as well as 
some other elements threaded through that around social isolation, food poverty, um, held hopefully in a really delightful and engaging story as well. Um, but yes, so that kind of speaks to a lot of the things that we've covered in this conversation. And how did the idea for Guerrilla Gardening come about? Where did that whole idea come from? Uh, that, do you know what? That was very, the, the sort of seeds of that, let's see, gardening metaphor, uh, was in lockdown. And it was, um, it was how so many people had found kind of solace in being outdoors and people who weren't usually accessing the outdoors. So we, we live on the edge of um, Bradford, uh, and so we can access the countryside sort of very easily and the city, you know. Uh, but we saw, you know, our area was deluged with people who normally wouldn't be coming out and, and kind of just taking, um, well, like I say, solace in the outdoors. Um, and that idea of gardening, a lot of people, myself included, you know, kind of took to their gardens. And it wasn't just about, oh, we can't do anything else, we'll do this. It was in part about making sense of all of this uncertainty um, by putting your hands in the soil, by growing something, the certainty of, of that. Um, and then also sort of conversations around inner city schools and how a lot of children don't have easy access to green spaces and are very disconnected with the origins of their food and where their food comes from. And uh, when I was living in inner city Birmingham, you know, I, I had sort of direct experience of that with the children who lived in um, the same avenue as me, it's sort of a high, an area of high density housing, lots of kids who just, you know, the park down the road was their green space and was heavily used, but their connection to kind of, um, the outdoor environment was absent um, to the point where I remember the one tree in our avenue was cut down and the when I came back from work and said what happened to the tree and the kids said oh it's gone it was dirty so that kind of relationship to nature for those children was really difficult um, and also the whole kind of campaigning around food poverty um, so I think it was a confluence of all of those things, really. Uh, and then from those beginnings, starting to have conversations and find those um, sort of crossover and interest with organisations and kind of find the need, really, and sort of discover that, yes, there is a need for storytelling that deals with this stuff and deals with kind of um, growing as activism, but also community building activity, also a way of communities taking agency in addressing issues around food poverty, also connecting and providing children in inner city environments with opportunities to connect to green spaces and classrooms to be taken outdoors. So really all of that stuff coming together, I think. And what's the remaining timeline for the project? Where are you now within the process? So we're fundraising. So we've just submitted bids. Uh, if we're successful with that, then early in the new year, we'll um, spend some time um, really solidifying those partnerships um, and going and spending time with those growing communities, um, partly as kind of research and partly, like I say, as kind of cementing the partnerships. Um, we'll also take work into schools, very early ideas, um, hopefully with a, a small cohort of Bradford schools um, who are part of a, an initiative called Edible Playgrounds, 
Um, so they're setting up growing spaces in their playgrounds. And then early summer, uh, we'll have some time in the studio uh, working with a, a dramaturg, uh, a couple of actors and uh, a, an automata artist consultant to explore kind of elements, um, mechanical elements um, using found objects. So that will be informed by sort of all of the work that we're doing with growing communities and with children. Then really depending on where that's at and sort of conversations running alongside that with potential venues, I think we'd be looking at touring into 2022. Um, obviously that's all contingent on what's going to be happening with the, the kind of touring landscape. And is that certainly a definite aspiration now for the Blas and the project to expand into those national waters? Yeah, I think so. At the moment, that's an aspiration. But I think, you know, we need to kind of have those conversations as to where this goes, who this engages and how we engage them. I mean, the intention would be that we would create a performance that could sit across community settings and theatre venues and that our partners would work with us to create uh, other engagement activity to kind of uh, complement and extend and enhance the um, the experience of the performance. But um, I think, you know, we really need to kind of have that conversation more deeply to see what that looks like and, and, and who engages, yeah. I mean, they have their, those organisations that I mentioned, they have their own national networks uh, and national touring is, you know, part of our kind of strategic intentions. So there's a... There's a definite compatibility. One of the things I probably should have mentioned earlier was that uh, during the lockdown period, we commissioned a piece of research which was very much looking at the touring ecology, um, specifically looking at uh, older children. But, you know, a lot of our... That kind of has given us intelligence to think about our national touring profile, uh, which, by the way, that research is available for anybody to access you know we so if anybody's listening to this and they are interested you know they do get in touch with me i'm happy to share it and are you hopeful that we will see the vulture song returning to touring again in 2021 maybe 2022 what do you think yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't say no i think that that's all possible um you know i think we're sort of in that process now um, once we start to know what the touring ecology looks like, you know, then it will be, um, you know, we'll be looking at our sort of strategic planning for over the next sort of three, four years or so. So it, it's entirely possible that that could, because that didn't really have a chance to to tour to those settings, uh, those theatre settings. You know, that that was incomplete. So there is the possibility of of looking at touring that again. So 2021 sounds like it's shaping up to be a really important and exciting year for the Blas. Do you have any other plans, any other big things on the kind of tick list that the Blas are hoping to achieve or directions that you're hoping to head in the future? Yeah, I mean, we've got another couple of uh, potential partnerships that we're, um, that we're fundraising for. Or that were part of um, the bid that we've recently submitted and again are part of our sort of um, our future plans. So we have a, um, a partnership with Utopia Theatre um, that we're hoping to develop and Utopia Theatre are a company that explore 
um, African stories or stories from and for the African diaspora. They're a resident company at Sheffield Theatres. Uh, their artistic director, um, Moji Sola, is a, a British Nigerian woman. Um, and they kind of synthesize Western and African theatre forms. Um, so we're kind of in the early stages of exploring a potential co-production with them, which is around a series of stories that are published stories um, about a character called Anahabiscus. So that's a kind of very early stage potential collaboration there. Um, and we're in conversation with um, uh, a company that you may be familiar with, Milk Presents. <laughs> Uh, and uh, just really at very, very early stages about whether there's possibilities of some kind of partnership there. Um, so that's, you know, really, really early stage conversation. But I think, you know, we're very interested in when there are stories that um, connect with children and young people, really working with companies who bring expertise around those stories, particularly when they are beyond our own realm of, of experience and expertise. So that kind of sense of authentic lived experiences. And that, that kind of um, uh, us being a company that seeks partnerships and collaborates is definitely something that we're looking at what those collaborations are for the future. Um, you know, and that feels very exciting as well. And how you share your expertise where it might be different. You know, what does that look like in terms of work? Yeah, yeah well, I would just like to say, Deborah, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with me today. Um, thank you for your time. It's much appreciated and it's been absolutely just brilliant just to catch up with you and hear about all of the fantastic work that you've been doing and that the Blas continue to do in Leeds and nationally as well so thank you very much no no um, I've enjoyed yeah, it it's, it's, it's been good it's been really good thank you and hopefully I haven't rambled on too much and you'll be able to edit it into something <laughs> coherent <laughs> thank you